Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 312, Grim Tidings Takeover, with Rob Matheny, Philip Overby, and Victor Milan. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. We're without Christy Cherish today. She's in Calgary hanging out and taking photos with all sorts of glamorous people like the Weeks at When Words Collide in Calgary. And But she'll be back next week when we're going to be at the Hugo Awards in Sasquatch. But I had... Well, I'm not going to say better than Christy. I'll get, I'll get, I'll get knee, I'll get knee for that. But uh, I do have two special guest hosts, and I'm going to explain myself and the madness that we're going to be creating. But we have Rob Matheny and Philip Overby, who are going to join me as special guest hosts, and I'll explain the madness. Gentlemen, say hello. 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 All right. Well, most of you have heard that Rob's name mentioned on from time to time on the show. Rob works very much, works very hard behind the scenes here at Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. He's a, our audio engineer, and pretty much every show you hear is a product of his fine execution. But one of the things he decided to do in concert with Philip in May, it was May, right, guys? Yes, sir was launch, uh, I'm going to say a narrower, more narrow in topic podcast, but very much tied to a genre called the Grim Tidings podcast. And you've heard me talk about it from time to time. And so Rob, Philip, and I decided we would try this little experiment. And we're going to introduce you all because I think the listeners of Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing would enjoy the show very much. What we're going to do today is I'm going to talk to the fellas, ask them a little bit about the Grim Tidings podcast, why they decided to start it, and then we're going to give you a sample of the type of show that they would do on the Grim Tidings podcast. They actually are interviewing Victor Milan, the author of The Dinosaur Lords, and we're essentially going to do a drop-in interview that they would have, and they are also going to run it concurrently on their show. But this is the type of material that you could come to expect out of the Grim Tidings podcast. And if you enjoy the show on Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, what I'm encouraging you to do is basically check the fellas out. So, sound fair, guys? You ready for a few questions about Grim Dark and the Grim and the Grim Tidings podcast? Yeah, we're absolutely ready, man. Thanks for uh, taking the time to have us on the show. It's very awesome. Yeah, very awesome yeah. to have both of you. Philip, you, come on, you need to say how awesome it is. I heard you jump. Yes, it's really awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, why did you guys decide to start the, start the show? Well, we have a uh, Facebook group um, that where really all this madness manifested itself. It's called um, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers. And it was actually a Facebook group that I started <clears throat> over a year ago. Um, it really was born out of there were no other grimdark groups on Facebook other than some uh, vague references to My Little Pony and and uh, maybe a, a Warhammer group or two, but nothing that really covered the subgenre of grimdark. 
Um, so I decided to start up the group and slowly and surely we're up to 700 members now and we just keep globbing on new people who are fans of this subgenre that we that we enjoy. And uh, lo and behold, uh, back in April, May, um, a few of the admins got together and said, hey, we should start a podcast. And I was already thinking, hey, I should start a podcast because I've been bro- broadcasting professionally for over 15 years. That's really where uh, where my passion lies. And so for to have a chance to do a podcast was something that I always wanted to do. I've been a big fan of Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, uh, other podcasts like Writing Excuses, uh, the Roundtable podcast. Um, there's just a lot of good stuff out there, but it really just came down to we love Grimdark. Let's talk about it. And Philip and I decided to start uh, the Grim Tidings podcast. and It's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, I'm a I'm a relative neophyte to podcasting. Uh, I don't really see myself as having a voice for podcasting because I kind of uh, have a gravelly southern drawl that uh, may put some people off. But um, I, I was originally going to do YouTube videos, but I had a really crappy webcam and it never worked, so it just pissed me off. So. When we decided to do the podcast, I was like, okay, I'll just do this then because uh, I love talking about fantasy and the darker edge of fantasy. So it's been really cool to to meet all these different people and just kind of nerd out and talk about various topics. Philip, with your your voice, you say you don't have a voice for podcasts, but has has Rob mentioned to you who you remind me of? Because I've been listening to the show. No, he hasn't told. He hasn't told you. So, no. did, have you ever watched the HBO show Silicon Valley? No, I haven't. I haven't seen that. No. Oh, you'll have to check it out, Rob. You watch the show, don't you? Yes, absolutely. Great show. Okay, so he, you'll have to explain to him that he reminds me of Gilfoyle. Yeah, he he is pretty much Gilfoyle. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll have to I'll have to Google that later. <laughs> he's he's a devil worshiping coder that that has a, a certainly bites his words and it's not quite southern but it's very caustic but funny demeanor and just a real great addition to the show and i i think you're a great addition to the podcast so don't sell yourself short on that southern draw i've got a little bit myself so um oklahoman parents but uh uh anyway i mean i'm certainly enjoying the show and it's glad to hear why you guys decided to start it so how, how does one actually become a lord of grimdark aka host of the show you got any special job requirements from you guys? Oh, there's there's a ton of prerequisites. Um, luckily, I found Philip to be able to to join this uh, endeavor. Um, you have to have at least, I'd say, three battle axes in your arsenal, um, and keep one on your person at all times. Would be a, uh, you have to have a brooding look on your face at least twenty three hours out of the, out of the day, um, lest anybody think that you're anything but grimdark. So those are at least at least two qualities, and I think Philip has has matched those. Um, at least to begin with. What about you, Philip? Well, yeah, I think your Facebook profile picture has to be as pissed off looking as possible. <laughs> um, that way everyone knows how uh, grim you are. So uh, my, my current picture is actually a cartoon, so it's not really that grim. No. So I guess I, I need to fix that. Yeah. But I think the big thing is to be able to talk about fantasy fiction in general, uh, more of the darker edge stuff. But I do think one thing that kind of sets us apart is that we we tend to uh, weave a web of obscenities on a regular basis so we're not we're not really pg-13 i guess um so we tend to be saltier so i think that that is another thing to be able to curse 
a lot and scare small children <laughs> and grandmothers. And grandmothers. And small animals, we, ideally. Which, Phil, yeah, I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. So uh, the parental guidance warning, I, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing is generally PG-13, but at this moment I will mention that this this episode might likely need parental guidance. So... <laughs> That's yeah. probably a good place to add that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do have an explicit tag. It's it's mainly because we really can't carry on the conversation for too long without dropping an F bomb or something like that. It's it's not really it's yeah. Which very much why we why we may be sister shows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we'll do this drop in. This this will work. So as we're talking about the episodes and Philip was talking about, you know, fantasy literature and that of the the darker variety what can we expect from you guys in in the upcoming episodes oh we've got a lot of great people coming on the show we have been very fortunate um i think it's with with the group we've kind of gotten some familiarity with some publishers and some authors who are already kind of in the scene um so we've been able to land some pretty fantastic guests on the show um one of them being um both for philip and i uh, an author that we grew up reading would be uh aria salvatore will be joining us on the show. Uh, we're going to be interviewing him at the end of the month, talking about his new novel, Archmage, that's coming out, uh, continuing the legacy of Drizzt du Erden. So he's going to be coming on the show. Uh, we've actually got Cameron Hurley, who's going to be joining us. Um, grimdark author Anthony Ryan will be on the show. Uh, new fantasy author Sebastian DeCastell will be joining us. Um, and But we also have kind of a, a sideshow that we do. It's called The Writer's Pit. And basically, it's a, it's a chance to talk to indie authors, maybe um, small press authors, um, agents, uh, book cover designers, kind of any, anybody who's kind of in the industry. We just kind of go in and have an extra nerdy conversation about this, this stuff because I'm a writer. Philip is an author. He's got a couple of short stories on Amazon. Um, so we both love writing and we love the craft. So we kind of delve into that deep end of things with what we call the writer's pit. So we've had uh, various guests coming on to that to, to that uh, show to be interviewed as well. Um, so it's almost like two shows, but all under the Grim Tidings podcast sort of moniker. Um, but uh, it's been a lot of fun um, being able to, to talk to these folks as well as these big name authors who are coming on the show. Um, and, and it's pretty exciting. We've got a lot of great content coming up uh, over the summer and, and beyond. Cool. Philip, what are you most excited about coming up? Uh, definitely R.A. Salvatore, considering uh, when I used to go to family functions when I was smaller, I would always carry a paperback with me everywhere I went, uh, basically, so I wouldn't have to interact with people. <laughs> Um, I was even a grim child. As a child, I was very grim. <laughs> so uh, I would carry around Dritz' books or Dragonlance books also uh, everywhere I went. So it's kind of surreal for me to be able to talk to R.A. Salvatore considering I grew up reading a lot of his. Uh, I mean, he, he, got, he was one of the authors besides Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman that got me into fantasy in general. So. Uh, it's really cool to be able to talk to talk to him, and I'm also excited about Cameron Hurley. Uh, I'm really, really interested in the way she approaches fantasy. Uh, I think she approaches fantasy in a in a way that is really unique and different. So we're really excited to talk to her about various uh, aspects of her world. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk to pretty much anybody. I, I'm I'm always excited to talk to people because I sit in my I sit in my room most of the time uh, alone, so anytime I get to talk to people is a happy is a happy occurrence. They let what you I'm, out of the cage. 
Yeah. One other awesome guest I did want to highlight too is going to be uh, the podcast debut of fantasy author Mazarkis Williams will be joining us uh, on the program. And uh, Mazarkis has never been on a podcast before. Um, and oh, there's wow. actually there's actually some um, debate as to what gender Mazarkis is. Um, so. Mazarkis will be joining us on the show for a podcast debut, and it should be exciting to do that as well. So just a lot of neat things happening uh, for the show so far, and uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. Excellent. You know, one of the concepts that you both kind of walked through was the, the writer's pit in particular. And one of the things I know, Rob, you've heard us speak about is this difficulty of determining how to even play gatekeeper of who to bring on the show from an indie uh, from an indie publishing or even a small press standpoint, just because the volume of material, that's probably a benefit of what you guys are doing from a subgenre. You've narrowed the field a little bit, but even then, I'm, st- I'm sure you both find it challenging uh, to some degree to figure out who to bring on from, a, from an indie or uh, small press st- standpoint and uh, talk grimdark with them. How, how do you guys approach that? I think our Facebook group is a good pool of resources in that aspect because we have a lot of interaction on that group and we've met several small press people uh including the ragnarok publications folks and uh, realm walker uh group these are small presses that are getting out there and i think that gives us a good pool of uh authors to talk to because we already have uh, good interaction with them on the on the page so it, it's definitely a good resource to find guests so we're not just kind of throwing darts at a board and saying okay let's choose this self pub guy or this small press guy uh, you know there's a lot of uh, people to choose from and and we get to kind of get to know them before we we interview them so that that's been definitely helpful in some some regards we do like to err on the side of awesome as well um for instance we just had a, a guest holly heisey uh on the last episode of the writer's pit and she is um a, a writer who publishes on wattpad she's also a book cover designer and her fiction has scored a uh, finalist spots for not one but two um, rounds of the writers of the future contest so she's got uh, a remarkable work ethic she's got some some original fiction that's out there and she also um, delved into the uh, topic of designing your own book cover and what are some things to consider when an indie author wants to to put their own book cover together what are some mistakes that are made so um, that's just one example of, of having a unique guest on the show who can bring a new perspective and highlight different aspects of the industry that uh, we think other writers uh, in the fantasy genre might find appealing. Yeah, no, you guys have done a tremendous job of, I think, bringing a, a number of different guests and approaching it from a number of different angles. And, and Philip, I'm glad you mentioned the Facebook group. I, I know you guys did that in the, the introduction, but if, if folks love, if you love Grimdark and you want to want a good forum for Grimdark, it's not your, the Facebook page that, that you guys are running is not your typical Facebook page. It really is a forum that you're running around Grimdark, so you're getting a lot of Grimdark news. There's a lot of great discussion. So inst- as soon as you said that, Philip, I'm like, ah, that makes perfect sense. You guys have such a great community involved there that I'm sure the community's telling you who's worth their salt from uh, – from an Indian small press standpoint. So yeah, a tremendous resource that people should be, should be checking out. 
So we talked about what you're looking forward to. So you've been running your own show now for about three, almost four months now. What about the first couple of months has surprised you both? Um, I would say that you really need to treat this uh, podcasting as a job in order to have the best success, I think. Um, it's good to be on a set schedule with set recording times um, so that there's an expectation. Um, I, f- I found that just kind of willy-nilly deciding, you know, maybe we'll podcast this week, maybe not, um, just really doesn't bode for having good forward momentum. And, and being on the same page creatively, both Philip and I just fire off on all cylinders. So uh, it, it definitely was a learning process of, of expectations and, and being able to record on time and, and things like that. But uh, it does help just to bring a good professional ethic to it, even though it's we're not raking in uh, tons of money just yet and we have yet to, to taste the fame and fortune that comes from podcasting. Um, it, I found that it does help to have a just a professional sort of work ethic when it comes to executing it. Just uh, it, it bodes well, and, and so far it's paying off for Phil and I with us being able to get some good guests on the show uh, so far. Yeah, so you, it sounds like you've been speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, what about you, man? What surprised you? I think uh, people enjoying us cursing so much kind of surprised me. I, I kind of thought that was going to be something that turned some people off in a way. Like, okay, these guys curse too much, but our audience kind of likes you know, saltier discussion. So... Several people just saying, yeah, you guys, I, I love how much you guys curse. And it's kind of like, okay, I'll curse, I'll curse more then. You like it. Yeah, I mean, you like one, author, it? one author even said, you guys just talk like normal people. So I like that. So, um, yeah, cool. I was not expecting the, the positive feedback. But so far, we've only had people saying, that's cool. We like that. We haven't had anybody uh, complain about it just yet. I grew up working in a lot of jobs like uh, plumber and construction worker and stuff like stuff like that. So um, I'm I'm used to being around people that curse very creatively. <laughs> so maybe that's one of my influences in some regards. I could I could understand that, and I see something in your future as a marketing spinoff. It's the Grim Tidings podcast, the drinking game. Nice. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Speaking of games, you guys up for a game? Yeah. Okay, we're gonna yes. we're gonna play we're gonna play a little game. It's just so folks, if they're confused about the subgenre at all, and knowing that your expertise is is around this subject matter, we're gonna play a game of how grimdark is it? Okay. Cool. I like it. So, all right, we're gonna play this game. Some control questions to get us started. Okay. Control questions are they should be on either end of the spectrum on on grimdark. Okay. The first one should be really easy. And you just you tell me if yet on the high scale of grimdark, and you guys use your own colorful metaphors, adjectives, what have you, for where this is on the spectrum of grimdark. Warhammer. I would say yes, very grimdark. I would say ten out of ten uh, rotting corpses. Okay, excellent. <laughs> All right. So, and I figured that much. And some some people consider that the beginning of modern grimdark, right? So absolutely, that's where the tagline grimdark came from. Was the Warhammer came from? Yeah, so very good control question. All right, next one, Gandhi. Ooh, he he is two out of ten. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what, who's below? What's below two? <laughs> yeah, Gandhi is two. <laughs> oh my gosh! Now we're gonna, definitely a two. Now we're gonna have to find out what's below two. I'm, I'm interested <laughs> to know what's below two. This is awesome. All right, 
All right, next control question, just to make sure we got our meter right. Uh, Conan, the Barbarian. He is extra grimdark. Yeah, he's like 11. He goes beyond... He's just one more than the scale allows. Okay. So he would be he would be eleven out of ten uh, exploding intestines. Okay. So we 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 maybe hit the peak of our grim darkness here, from a spectrum <laughs> standpoint. Okay. I'm just checking the meter. You can imagine where I'm going to go with this one. Just to check the meter, we got to get the the range right. <laughs> Baby chicks, and I I mean the the cute cuddly kind that walk behind mama. That's an interesting one. Well, they can be pretty grimdark if, um, <laughs> I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it as that pretty grimdark. Okay. Yeah. It depends on, are these post-apocalyptic baby chicks or just your yes. normal garden variety baby chicks? Okay. I'll give that a one. That would be a one. On the oh, scale. that's below, that's below Gandhi. Okay. Just below Gandhi. Absolutely. I'm giving it a three. A three. It's right above. They're right above Gandhi. Right above Gandhi. I'm going to see what we can do with Philip to get to a one. Well, I don't think it's on the list, but we'll okay. see. All right. So in some of these, if you don't have commentary, because I'm going to go through all. Well, I've got 18 here. We're going to wow. go through. Yeah. Well, maybe. We'll see. Dragon Age. I had to hit on. Because you guys are more than just fiction, too. You talk on a number of topics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We cover so. anything that's kind of in, in, in the related periphery of uh, of grimdark so yeah games movies tv shows anything that's, Music. that's awesome we 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 cover it yeah yeah so i wanted to make sure i was representative here that's why i've got 18 at least on my list so dragon age mm. pretty grimdarkish dragon age, dragon age i would say uh, started out really dark but it seems the latest incarnations have kind of scaled back a little bit so i would say maybe seven seven okay mario party <laughs> that would be lower maybe a five because it's a lot of animated violence but still violence well uh, again it depends on who's playing the game because <laughs> i've played some games with some pretty insane people that uh, take mario party pretty seriously so yeah particularly if you guys all own battle axes yeah <laughs> yeah things can get out of, out of hand pretty quick so. i i just own the claw from you know the claw from the Bruce Lee movies. You know, I, I don't own a battle axe, so I'm not sure I qualify. You'll get there. You'll get there. <laughs> I'll get there. Okay. The Witcher. Uh, this is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, the series by Sapkowski is one of my favorites, but I think some people don't know it's actually a, a series of s stories that were written first and the game came later. But I would say the stories would probably be like uh, seven but the game is like a nine so the, the the game actually seems darker than the than the stories themselves to me anyway interesting yeah christy's gonna write about the games for the website so you guys all have to compare notes at some point so speaking of christy christy threw a couple of these at me because she was sad she was gonna miss this so she wanted to make sure she got a couple included in this this was one she gave to me to to see what you guys thought about this. The never-ending story. Oh, that, that's pretty depressing, actually, like the never-ending story. Because think about it. It's a story that never ends. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's sad. And we need only say Artex. Artex yes. and the, the, the Empress crying and give me a name. <laughs> <laughs> pretty dark all right um 
Yeah, I'll say six. Six? I'll go with eight. I'll go eight. with eight for never-ending story. Yeah. All right. Well, it's interesting you went with eight, Rob, and then I'm going to juxtapose it with this one. Watchmen. Yeah, Watchmen's pretty dark, but I think because it's based in a real-world setting, it can only be so dark. Like, fantasy, I think, allows you to go beyond what reality considers dark, so... I would say Watchmen would be like a five for me, okay. kind of in the middle. Okay. We tend to emphasize the fantasy end of, of Grimdark uh, in most cases, and, and I, I completely agree with Philip. I think five five out of five exploding koala bears. I think we'll go with that. <laughs> koala bear. You know what's funny? You mentioned five out of five exploding koala bears. Is I just substituted baby chicks for koala bears earlier as a control question. Wow. We're mind mapping here, Rob. This is scary. <laughs> Okay, so I have one more movie for you guys. This was another Christie special, The Dark Crystal. That That's one that gave me nightmares when I was a kid. Even though I was a grim child, uh, I was very skittish and squeamish. So I remember the, the scene with the lady with her pulling her eyeball out. Uh, really creeped me out. And the Skeksis, with, they were fighting over the... Uh, Fighting it with the emperor like crumbles to, to dust or something. <laughs> it's pretty. That's like nightmare fuel. I was like, ah, <laughs> the vulture people are dying. It's scary. <laughs> so yeah, I would say uh, like an eight, definitely. A nostalgic grim, nostalgic quotient gave it an eight. Yeah, I think if I watched it now, it would be pretty low. But from a child's perspective, that's pretty pretty horrific film I it's think. the grim darkest of the jim henson properties though i would say muppets is pretty grim uh, but <laughs> i i have somebody right now that's very upset that miss piggy and kermit have ended their relationship so he's to the point of being at rooftop ready to dive <laughs> is nothing sacred anymore no it's not kermit and miss piggy can't stay together no nope. speaking of, we're gonna make a change here we're gonna move from movies to music okay okay so a little music, not too long a category. I've got a couple in here. So Sepultura. <laughs> we're still going on a scale of grimdark. I'd say they were. They used to be more grimdark than they are now. So we'll give yeah. them. We'll give them a four. Max Keller, I think, made Sepultura. So. Okay, twenty years ago, where would they have been, Rob? Oh, much higher. A good, a good seven or eight on the scale. Okay, seven or eight. Sepultura actually made the mistake of going into the mosh pit for a show. My best friend from high school is a big fan of theirs. And I got tickets that were in the mosh pit and went in there with sandals. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dumbass. Yeah, that all right. Bad. So <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> all right. So the next one's Justin Bieber. Mm. I could think of nothing more grimdark <laughs> than Justin Bieber. I don't know. Justin Bieber, um, he's, not, he's not too grim. He's just kind of, uh, what's the correct word? Douchey. <laughs> I think I think I think he's improved a lot recently though. I think he's tried to redeem himself, so I think he's yeah, I think he's doing better. He's less the subject of many people's nightmares. If you were to pick one to go in this category, who would it be? Uh for me it would be uh the uh black metal band Emperor, I think would be the grim <laughs> okay. darkest. I think I think Cannibal Corpse is probably pretty yeah, that would be <laughs> would be right there too. <laughs> they're at the top i mean especially uh, please please don't google cannibal corpse no. album covers <laughs> especially uh, not at work yeah yeah so please please don't do that um unless you are extremely curious to see 
some of the most horrific album covers of all time. Another subject change, television. My Little Pony. I haven't watched the recent My Little Pony. I know it's very popular with different segments of, uh, you know, different kinds of fans. But when I was a kid, my my sister had My Little Pony. And I I seem to recall one of the ponies getting their head stuck in a lamp and melted. The the pony's head got melted. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty grim dark. (laughs) That's my only recollection of My Little Pony. In my research for this conversation, uh, in our little game, I found that there is actually some My Little Pony Grimdark fan fiction. I was completely beside myself. So, just <laughs> <laughs> There's actually some My Little Pony videos on YouTube um, that are extremely dark. Uh, I don't know who made them, but it's some of the darkest stuff I've seen on the internet. <laughs> it's pretty... It's, I mean, think of... Like kind of cutesy characters, but then like horrible stuff happening to them. Kind of that vibe, Mm. but darker. (laughs) Darker. All right. I'll take your word for it. I'm not sure I want to see that. It it explains my son's, 13-year-old son's infatuation with My Little Pony, though, probably. More things you should not Google. Yeah, more. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Beavis and Butthead. People used to say I sounded like Butthead, actually. (laughs) You kind of do. They'd say... uh, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i have fondness for beavis and butthead i very much loved beavis and butthead they were they really hit their peak uh when i was a teenager and they they thoroughly influenced me in many uh, improper ways um but uh, i love beavis and butthead i'll I'll give them i'll i'll say a seven uh, seven scale yeah especially for the earlier episodes where beavis used to light stuff on fire uh before we change things around so yeah really smack the shit out of one another (laughs) Fire. (laughs) (laughs) all right so we were influenced earlier there was a name dropped and i promised i would insert it into this list pamela anderson pamela (laughs) (laughs) just to hear phillips say pamela (laughs) yeah pamela anderson i don't know she did that barbed wire show that was pretty dark (laughs) <laughs> she did some other stuff that probably isn't appropriate to talk about, but that was pretty dark. Too. <laughs> okay. So last one in TV, He-Man. This was another Christie special. She wanted to get your point of view on He-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, l- I can't really think of He-Man as dark anymore after I've seen that video. With the What is it? They're singing uh, what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of He-Man like dark, um, but Skeletor was pretty pretty dark because um, he's—I mean—he's a skeleton <laughs> wizard. He's a skeleton wizard. H- how much darker can you get than a skeleton wizard that wears purple? And he's ripped. And he's ripped. <laughs> he's jacked. He had a six jacked foot. skeleton. <laughs> oh, had a six-pack that Skeletor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so fiction, finally, we're at fiction. Okay. And and I understand that you'll have a knockdown, drag-out fight over George R. R. Martin in Game of Thrones. Oh, Absolutely. Pa- Papa George is what we call him. Papa George. So yes. we'll, we'll start, start with Papa George there. George R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones. Very grimdark. Um, he's, I, he, I would put him at 10. Um, 10? I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, I really find that a lot of people have been drawn to Grimdark through 
George R. R. Martin and the success of Game of Thrones has really just kind of uh, people have seen the TV show. Uh, then they read the books and they're like, I love this. What else can I find? And then we kind of point them to the other authors in the genre, like Mark Lawrence, Joe Abercrombie, Peter V. Brett, um, these other guys who are writing the, the, the dark stuff that we really enjoy. And I think George has really helped direct a lot of people to other cool authors in, in the subgenre who are doing cool things. Philip, yeah, you agree would, with that? Yeah, I would give him max score just because he is the gateway drug for Grimdark in, in many ways. Um, he leads leads into other dark fiction for for many people, but and on the other hand, he's also one that can turn people off of grimdark. So uh, I've heard that argument also. People will will say, "Oh, I want to try out grimdark," and they'll start with the master of George Martin, and then they'll go, ah, "I couldn't get through the first book because you know I threw up too many times <laughs> or whatever." So yeah, it's not for everybody. That that's one thing about Grimdark we always talk about is that it can be a warning sign or it can be something that can show you uh, things that you know more things that you would enjoy uh, reading or listening to or watching or anything. What do, what do you do in that occasion? Do you try and give them another author to read, or at that point you just give up on them and go, just call them a name and swear at them <laughs> and then tell them to you're not worth our time. <laughs> Or do you yeah, give them um, another, <laughs> or do you give them another name of an author to try that might be you know similarly in that subgenre, but you know maybe maybe have a different style or uh, maybe if it's a stylistic thing, how do you guys approach that? I think Martin's kind of unrelenting towards character death, so maybe Joe Abercrombie is maybe less so, and he he's got also has a darker vibe, but I don't think he kills. Spoilers, but I don't think he <laughs> kills nearly as many people as George does. So I think that's one thing that turns people off sometimes is just the characters they get attached to, and then they're dead, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. well, now who do I root for? It's like, choose somebody else. <laughs> so where I had Joe on the list next. So where, where would you guys rate Joe really quickly? Because I know we're... We're getting to the point where I've kept you gentlemen a little bit too long. So where, where would you guys rate Joe? Joe is awesome. I give I give Joe a solid nine, if, if not a ten. Um, I know a lot of people enjoy Joe uh, because he he writes some very great characters. Um, uh, very, and he's also good with uh, uh, having female characters in his fiction as well. So um, I, I would rate him probably just below Papa George. I, I maybe call him Papa Joe, but uh, I think Papa George kind of uh, heads out the top, and and Joe Abercrombie, I'd say, is right right beneath him. Yeah, I think. George would be is Papa George, and maybe Joe is Uncle Joe. <laughs> that, that'll work. <laughs> Uncle Uncle Joe Grimdark. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, you guys, thanks so much for playing. How Grimdark is it? I had another couple. I'll send them to you uh, via social media. Uh, another couple wild cards and get your your points of view. But at this point, it it doesn't matter. You guys have been been great i really appreciate you guys taking the time best of luck with everything tied to the podcast and i can't wait to hear the interview with victor milan so you guys thanks again yes thank you very much yeah (laughs) thank you for having us on and if folks want to check us out on facebook 
We're at facebook.com slash the grim tidings podcast. It's kind of where we post our new episodes and things like that. And in addition to the, to the Facebook group as well. So drop on by, send us a line. And then uh, we're on Twitter at grim dark fiction as well. And we do lots of tweeting uh, during the week. So uh, definitely check us out. And thank you so much, Brent, for letting us come on and just kind of invade your podcast for a day. Uh, it's a cool opportunity. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. And I wouldn't expect this to be the last time. So I anticipate folks will have a great time with this. And maybe we can do this periodically. But as Rob said, everybody should go check out the Grim Tidings podcast. Enjoy this conversation with Victor Milan. And until next time, take care. This episode is brought to you by Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. Award-winning author Brenda Cooper's first science fiction-only collection treats readers to human stories about the future. In Cracking the Sky, meet a physicist who searches across timelines in a desperate attempt to travel across them herself. A young woman who tries to recover the magic of a trip on a river with her grandfather. A young couple who suspects their neighbor's child is being raised by robots. And many more. Publishers Weekly says about Cracking the Sky, this capable collection of hard SF stories focuses squarely on world building, from the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. to the far reaches of space. Cooper works hard to center each piece on a way that technology has influenced human lives. Those who love technology-driven stories will find a lot to like. And James Van Pelt, author of Strangers and Beggars, calls the collection a masterful blend of hard-edged speculation tied to insightful evocations of the human spirit. To learn more, come to the show notes and click on the image that you'll see for Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. In fact, we're giving away a copy of Cracking the Sky, U.S. residents only. To enter, email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com or share a tweet or Facebook post. And be sure to tag us so we see the entry. A professional writer of fantasy, science fiction, and more for over 40 years, our guest has published over 100 novels, including the Prometheus award-winning novel The Cybernetic Samurai and its sequel Cybernetic Shogun. As a founding member of the Wild Cards Shared World Project with George R.R. R. Martin, or affectionately as we call him, Papa George, uh, our guest has penned multiple shared universe novels for properties including Forgotten Realms and Star Trek. Other credits include being a cowboy, a semi-pro actor, computer tech, and Albuquerque's most popular all-night progressive rock DJ. His new novel, The Dinosaur Lords, was released July 28th from our good friends at Tor, and the Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Mr. Victor Milan to the show. Victor, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. And this is your first podcast ever. It is. I'm a podcast virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on board. I can imagine you're pretty busy with the release of the Dinosaur Lords just coming out. For folks who are not hip to the Dinosaur Lords, if you could just give us a a description of the book uh, for for new listeners. Well, it's basically what the cover suggests. It's nice writing dinosaurs. Or as George R.R. Martin himself put it when he was trying to describe it to a friend... It's like Jurassic Park meets a Game of Thrones. So uh, that's actually as good a capsule description as I've heard. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a sizable blurb there from Papa George to uh, give his blessing upon the dinosaur lords. So uh, that's very cool. The timing, I don't know if you guys even planned this, but to have it come out 
kind of in concurrence with the brand new Jurassic World movie that, that came out. I mean, everything is just kind of going for you to, to get the hype going about this book, and a lot of people are excited about it. Let's go. Actually, it was entirely fortuitous, although I probably should should credit my editor, Claire Eddy, with, with great prescience because she's a great editor. Now, you expressed some relief in uh, some other interviews about how long it's taken you to get Dinosaur Lords out into the world. Um, how long has Dinosaur Lords kind of been in in your brain and, and, and in process to finally get it out to, for this July release? A long time. Uh, and you guys have done your homework, by the way. I, <laughs> I compliment you. I thought started thinking in terms of it in early, I think, 2003. I wanted to do a big book. I wanted to do, frankly, what I hoped would be a breakout book for me. And I wanted to do what was the the most entertaining novel that my then almost three decades of experience and all my passion could create. And I had three candidates, and I promised that I was going to make the decision on my birthday. And on August the 3rd, 2003, I... I woke up and thought, it's the Dinosaur Lords, and immediately started working on it. So that's, that's pretty much how, how it came about. And the, the other the, the reason it came about is, well, I've always loved dinosaurs since I was a kid, and dinosaurs are cool, and I wanted to tell a story with dinosaurs in it. Yeah, I also uh, was a big fan of dinosaurs as a child. I had several plastic dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. And uh, my favorite was the Brontosaurus because I could swing it by its tail. And I could pretend I could pretend it was a sword or or any kind of weapon. A versatile dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. So, what would you say is, is your favorite dinosaur uh, in in all of the dinosaur kingdom? Oh, unquestionably the Triceratops. I mean, T. Rex oh, okay. is yeah. cool. Brontosaurus or Apatosaurus, and it turns out that both probably existed. Uh, you know, a lot of them. But my favorite is the Triceratops, and in fact, my personal logo is a blue Triceratops head. I noticed at the beginning of your novel, there's a big scene with uh, several triceratops. How do you think in real life, would it be easy to take care of a triceratops? How would you take care of one? Well, gingerly would be good, I think. <laughs> uh, I that's, that's one of the reasons I made one of my, my viewpoint characters, one of my main narrators, into what I call a dinosaur master, who is essentially a professional dinosaur wrangler for the sort of nobles who could afford to field dinosaurs for warfare. And you spoke earlier by being a cowboy. Actually, I, and, I, and I was that. I was a cowboy slash camp counselor at a, at a ranch in the Amos Mountains near Los Alamos for a few years, as well as having been a camper there for years beforehand. And I did learn a lot about what's required in tending to horses and cattle. And I reckoned that it would be similar, except, you know, kind of combine something the, the size of the largest Indian elephant with the, the temperament of a rhinoceros. So, you know, it would be arduous and tricky <laughs> so would would it be easy for one person to take care of a, of one dinosaur would you need a large group of people to keep it under control well it you know the the idea in my universe in my world which is called paradise is that the dinosaurs are basically the the animals they're the mesozoic fauna are the fauna mesozoic flora are the flora uh, including not just dinosaurs, but pterosaurs, flying lizards, and the marine reptiles. And that means that they're pretty much everyday everything from 
pets to beast of burden to food to various degrees of pests to outright menaces, depending on their size and temperament. So domestication of dinosaurs is a long-established fact, and the, the techniques for doing so are relatively common. But, you know, a, a dinosaur as large and potentially cranky as a war-trained triceratops ideally is going to have several attendants, being a, your dinosaur master and various grooms or apprentices or whatever kind of scut work types can be dragooned into it. Uh, the big two-legged, usually hadrosaur or duckbill beasts used for nightly mounts are probably in their own way even by more high maintenance because they're somewhat higher strung. So you um since so you're writing a fantasy and, and uh, the the blurb does invoke the um, shadow of Game of Thrones. Uh, Game of Thrones itself is a, is a violent series. I can imagine that uh, the dinosaur battles must get quite bloody and violent, which we're uh, admittedly fans of, being it, it's 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 a, it's a grim, dark focused uh, podcast. Um, how did you approach the violence in your book, The Dinosaur Lords? Uh, did you make it a, a complete bloodbath, or did you have to tame it down? What was kind of your approach with with um, having these epic dinosaur battles? Well, I'm a long time action adventure writer. Most of my published fiction has involved, in one way or another, adventure fiction. Whether it's you know wild cards books, my own novels such as Cybernetic Samurai. Or the the books like the the Deathlands series I wrote for a long time. So yeah, I've always actually taken a fair degree of pride in my realistic mayhem. I, I try to research it carefully and think about what it would really be like, and then portray a sense of it. So yeah, it's pretty no holds barred. I mean, I don't try to dwell on the gore, but it's it's a battle, and a lot of unpleasant things are happening, and. You know, you are there to see a lot of them and hear and smell them. So um, I guess the the point is not to dwell on the details so much as it is to make the experience as vivid and I guess to make it seem as much as the as much as possible that the reader is living it. Interesting, interesting. Now, you, we did mention that uh, George did give you the, the blurb for that book. Um, in addition, the the book just has stellar cover art and then the internal yes. artwork is just mind-boggling it's just really really well done tor has you know, spared no expense i think in making this book as in- impressive as possible um what's been your experience with with the buzz that you you've received so far with the book well it's been very good now i, I just in, in passing yes tor has done a wonderful job at making it a beautiful book and a lot of credit has to go to the artist who did both the cover and the interior art richard anderson who's a uk illustrator who apparently has done a lot of stuff for Warhammer. I wasn't familiar with his work beforehand, but the man behind the cover is Richard Anderson. And yeah, starting with the release of the cover last fall, the a lot of buzz built up, a lot of excitement aroused by it, and then just by people being aware of what the concept was. And that's that's continued to grow. The, the reception has been, so far, very good. A lot of people were excited about it. A lot of people are writing to let me know, well, I am enjoying it, or I finished it, and I enjoyed it a lot. So I'm really pleased by that. Now, I will also say that while the the response in North America has been really gratifying, nothing prepared me for the response from Brazil when it was announced that Dark Side Books had acquired the rights down there. The Brazilian, the Brazilian fans were enthusiastic, let's just say. <laughs> That's great that it's, uh, you know, international hit 
And uh, I think dinosaurs are a great topic to interject into fantasy worlds. Well, one thing that's been popular for a long time in fantasy are dragons. We've had lots of dragons in, in various worlds over the years. Would you be flattered if you noticed more fantasy writers started putting dinosaurs in their worlds instead of dragons? Or would, would you feel like dinosaurs are kind of your thing and uh, kind of like when uh, George Martin started uh, writing darker kinds of fantasy. A lot of other people started writing darker kinds of fantasy. So how would you feel if other writers started using dinosaurs instead of uh, dragons or other kind of traditional fantasy creatures? Well, that'd be cool. I, I don't have a trademark on dinosaurs, of course. <laughs> Not really the jealous type. I mean, I think I am the, I'm the first that I know about to use dinosaurs systematically in a, a big fantasy story of this sort, an epic fantasy. I, it's not as if they haven't been used before. I understand that uh, both the, the RuneQuest RPG and eventually Dungeons & Dragons had dinosaurs incorporated into their bestiaries at one point or another. And there was also Dinotopia, which I'm actually not that familiar with ex except for the pictures. So dinosaurs have been used some in fantasy before, and if people were to decide to make greater use of dinosaurs, I, I, I think that would be great. There was actually a cartoon when I was a kid, I think it was called Dino Riders. Oh yeah, people have called that to my attention too, especially since <laughs> the, the cover came out. Yeah, yeah, that, but it was more like a sci-fi thing, and I, oh, think yeah. the, I think think the dinosaurs had like robot arms or or something but it's pretty awesome for a kid like whoa wow oh, yeah. it's robot dinosaurs robot dinosaurs yeah so i could swing around my brontosaurus figure <laughs> and have ro robot <laughs> robot dinosaurs fighting and you at one point on your facebook page you did ask your readers if they can if they consider the dinosaur lords grimdark um uh -huh. Um, I think there was a it was kind of a heated debate as to if it was or if it wasn't. Um, I would ask you what, what what would your verdict be as far as the dinosaur lords? Would you consider it grimdark? And um, also, I wanted to just highlight what other things that you would use in your story to to balance out the darker elements, uh, be it either humor or hope. What's sort of your tapestry of storytelling that you use to to make it balanced? Well, those those were two of the things that, in fact, were adduced by my fans. Is that they said outright, "There's humor and hope in your work," and they didn't, for the most part, find that in Grimdark. It was also described by another who'd actually read the book in in the submission form, a friend who who called it fantasy with sewers, which I think is does describe the approach. I try for a realistic type of fantasy. Uh, at the same time, I also believe in happy endings. That they don't all have to be happy and. If you you know read even the first book, some people come to some mighty unhappy endings and also have some mighty unhappy middles. But yeah, I, I myself am not... Well, I also have to admit that my own personal philosophy, which is trying to be as positive as possible, doesn't always reflect itself in my fiction. <laughs> a pretty dark thing does tend to happen. Some pretty dark things do tend to happen. But I, I try not to make it unrelieved grimness, as it were. Now, I'm not terribly familiar with grimdark fiction. I haven't read a whole lot of it, so I'm, I'm also not meaning that that's all it consists of. I'm sure it has its, a fairly wide variety of approaches to it. I guess what I'm looking for is more just what I consider realism, in the sense that it's, it's something that, again, the reader can feel as if they're actually experiencing it, for good or ill. Do you feel like... Um there are certain kinds of fiction that can be de devoid of hope, like have a really downer kind of ending, or do you think it's always important to have some kind of hope in every story? 
so the reader can attach themselves to some kind of positive outcome? Well, frankly, it depends on the story, even if I'm writing it. In general, I like, I like positive outcomes in my own work, but that doesn't mean that, obviously, it doesn't mean everyone has to do it that way. I know there's a lot of fiction that is takes on a fairly hopeless worldview, I guess. And in just in general terms, I think there's room for all of it. I myself am not inclined to write a great deal of that sort. I do, I do favor some degree of hope and some degree of positive outcome. But, you know, it's a wide world, but I think all are welcome in it. Yeah, I think, I think the only outcome that would be really sad for your world is if a meteor hit your world and killed all the dinosaurs. <laughs> well, there you go. And, and, and as I say, it's not Earth. So, yeah. It, now, that still could happen. I'm not going to... I hope not. <laughs> That's my hope. We also have a, a lot of writers who uh, listen to our show as well. Um, so we wanted to hit on a couple of things that you mentioned before um, about your writing process. Um, you did mention that you are a part of a writing group called Critical Mass. Yes. Could you tell us about your experience with this writing group and, and how they helped you shape the dinosaur lore? Well, it's been great and necessary, to tell you the truth. I uh, started going to the group. The group actually has been around since the early aughts, and I started going around 10 years ago, if I recall correctly. And George R.R. R. Martin was, in fact, one of the founding members of the group, although he no longer was participate, participating by the time I I started, but Melinda Snodgrass, who was who's another old friend and wild cards person, uh, was a participant at the time. And Walter John Williams, Sage Walker was in it. Later on, Daniel Abraham came in, and then Ty Frank, and we got to read Leviathan Wakes. Their first book is James S. A. Corey, which was great. So, and now we've got Steve Sterling. He was actually another early member. John Joseph Miller, who's another. Wild Cards original and stalwart, a good frired, and some up-and-coming writers like Matt M.T. Wrighton, Lauren Tafoe, uh, Serena Ulibari, and Emily Ma Tippett, or Emily Ma. So uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good group, and we get some very, very good feedback. It's, it's consistently been, and I think this is necessary, craft-based. It's been towards treating writing as a craft, as a trade, and, and how to do it in a way that will basically render your fiction readable, and you could put whatever load you want into it of, of meaning or import or whatever. But in terms of writing to be read, that's largely what we've been we've been concentrating on, and the group has also consistently been good about keeping egos out of the group. And I've learned an immense amount from about writing from just observing my friends, not just when my own work is being critiqued, but also watching the the other people critique other people's work. It, it, it's, it's led me to think about a lot of things. And also, one, that they helped me a great deal in bashing the dinosaur lords into shape, and they helped me to overcome a particularly bad habit that had crept into my writing somewhere around 2000 that I was having trouble shaking off. Plus, they helped me when it came time to develop it into what was then a trilogy and uh, plot it out to present it for sale, uh, they helped me plot what was then book two and three. Now it's become a, a six-book series, a hexology, through the miracle of the editor deciding the books were too long and we had to split them in two. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I mean, you've been writing for many, many years before you decided to, to join up with the writers group. Um, oh, yeah. You said about 10 years ago. Did you think you were kind of hitting a rut with your writing style and you needed to develop it a little bit more? Or what was the impetus to sign up with them? Well, it was more that I finally got the Dinosaur Lords to a point where I thought that it might be worth my while to, to, to bring it. I mean, for a while, I wasn't writing very much under my own name. I was writing basically work-for-hire uh, type things, like, the, for example, the books of the Deathlands series published by Gold Eagle. And that wasn't the sort of thing that would call for participation in a writer's group and would really kind of waste everybody's time. And plus, you know, I was pretty good at doing it. But when I got began to develop Dinosaur Lords and get some of it written... I decided to accept what was then a, a standing invitation to join the others in the group, and I'm glad I did. So you, you've been involved with wild cards and other shared worlds for a while. What is your experience dealing with a shared world, and are there rules that you have to follow so it's consistent between all the different writers, or do you, do you have guidelines that you have to follow, or is it kind of left up to you to decide what to do as far as... Uh, the wild card uh, world. Oh well, in, in, in all of them, at least that I've had experience of, there there are both rules and guidelines. Now, in the case of wild cards, uh, George and Melinda really put the project together in terms of developing it out of a long term role playing game uh, that oh. we had played that was that was run by George. In fact, it was a superhero role playing game called Super World. And when he realized we were all spending too much time on it, not enough time writing, he decided to try to do turn it into something that might make some money and so george who at that time had a fair amount of editorial experience and melinda who was a, was a former lawyer she had a law degree and practiced for a while uh were the ones who actually handled the transition they came up with their ideas for for a set of guidelines and how to put together what became the wild cards consortium and then uh, the late robert lynn Aspirin and lynn abbey were intensely kind enough at some convention back in the 80s, some world con, to sit down with George and Melinda and describe their own experiences with the Thieves' World shared world anthology, which I believe was the first. Uh, at least it's the first one I could call to mind. And most particularly, the stuff that they had learned better than to do. You know, don't do this. They, they, they were incredibly generous with their hard-earned lessons. And out of that came the, the consortium agreement and the what I consider the most brilliant part of that was simply that you, you couldn't make any major change to another character, another writer's character, without that writer's permission. On the other hand, you know, you couldn't mutilate them, you couldn't kill them, you couldn't have them buried, you couldn't, you know, have them decide on a sex change, any of that without permission. On the other hand, uh, basically, consortium points, which amount to shares, were awarded to writers on the basis, and are awarded on the basis of how much their characters are used. So, along with the fact that, uh, as as writers, most of us were fairly cognizant of the the need for bad things to occasionally happen to good people, to have a have good and engaging stories, to have drama. There was also the purely mercenary motive that okay well I, I i love my character but you know if i let him kill her off here it is dramatic and also well i i get consortium points <laughs> and that's that system has worked frankly brilliantly as far as i'm concerned for for the 
30 years or so that it's been in effect. So it still kind of has that element of role-playing game because uh, you get points if uh, certain things happen. So it still has that flavor that it originally started from a role-playing game. In oh, a way. yeah, in a way. But um, the, the, the thing about consortium points is that when monies come in, to the to the consortium for wild cards. If you, for example, if you have a story in an anthology, you get a certain amount of the income for that. But you're also awarded consortium points. And again, if your characters are used, you get consortium points. And there is a, another payment that's added onto that, a payout from the the income of the wild cards consortium that's based on the number of consortium points that you hold. So there's actually money involved too. Although oh, okay. you are right, there, there there is a certain game aspect to it, the gaining points. But as I say, they're kind of like shares. And just so I heard it right, you actually played tabletop RPGs with Papa George as your DM. Oh, hell, I gave him the game in the first place for his <laughs> birthday. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, we had played some before, and we wound up getting into a fairly protracted uh, campaign of The Call of Cthulhu, which is a classic game. Oh yeah, run by, run by John Joseph Miller, and in which most of the wild carders, including frequently Papa George, took part. <laughs> and then, because I knew of because I knew of George's love for comics and interest, longtime interest in comics, uh, when the same company that did Call of Cthulhu, Chaosium Games, came out with a a superhero role playing game called Superworld, right about. A few weeks before George's birthday, or a few days before George's birthday, I thought, well, swell, I'll give him that. And <laughs> he liked it, and he started running the campaign, and we all started playing it, and that was where it came from. Speaking of role-playing games, uh, I mean, your your world is ripe for, for role-playing games or or video games or anything like that. Is there any, any stuff like that you could talk about uh, in the works, comic series or... Or video game, or tabletop role-playing game, anything like that? Well, I've had some people mention interest, but I basically directed them to talk to my agent, who in fact handles the rights for all of those things, and nothing so far that I know of has has come of it. But I am hopeful. I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it would lend itself to tabletop role-playing games, or to video games, or graphic novels, for that matter. I... I wanted to make it especially a very, very visual story and very, very visual world. And I think it, therefore it lends itself to those things. Uh, maybe Papa George could pull some strings, get it on a 10 episode series on a HBO or something might be. Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> now he has expressed yeah, the belief. Awesome. He has expressed the belief at, at, at our local convention, Bubaticon a few years ago that dinosaur Lords would be well suited for that. Of course, that's kind of a gimme because basically the the extended mini series treatment or limited season series treatment Game of Thrones getting is basically ideal for any work of you know noveling fiction. I think there definitely uh, there's definitely a clamoring for more uh, fantasy series, t- big TV series. So I think your world would 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 fit perfectly with. Uh, with what people are looking for is, you know, kind of high action, you know, it has dinosaurs in it and lots of you know, fantasy elements. So I think, you know, a movie or a TV series would, would fit it immensely. Oh, I hope so. Do you still have time so, for the game? I haven't done much for at least not out 
socially petted paper games for a long time. I do computer gaming uh, regularly, and mostly I play on the Xbox 360. My current favorite game is Borderlands 2. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of still addicted to that. I know it's several <laughs> years old, but it's still my favorite to play. <laughs> I just got myself Call of Duty Ghosts and have, have started playing that and playing Skyrim sub. Played most of the way through Bioshock Infinite, which is a brilliant job of world building. Although I kind of feel as if they they get away from that a little bit too much. And, and it just barely becomes a little repetitive. But at the same time, there's some wonderful, wonderful world building. And the story overall, I think, is strong in that one. A lot of people like to say, who would win in a fight versus <laughs> this guy and this guy or whatever. Uh-huh. So which, which dinosaur do you think has the best chance of defeating uh, a full-grown dragon, such as a smog or uh, along that line? Which dinosaur has the best fighting chance in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> oh, holy crap, I'd really have to say, realistically, none of them against an enemy that could fly <laughs> and breathe fire! I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the flyers or, were not dinosaurs, but, but uh, pterosaurs, wing, winged reptiles, were could, some of them could be large and formidable, but they were also quite fragile, not to mention failing to breathe fire. And even like a T-Rex, I mean, you know, if, if Smog happened to get close enough to Rex for, or one of the even bigger ones, like uh, Carcharodontosaurus, to get a grip on him, then it could be bad. But why would Smog ever do that? Smog can fly over and strafe you with fire. <laughs> so I, I would have to say that in, in that kind of a contest, dinosaurs would be deeply screwed. <laughs> uh, they'd have to team up, maybe. Maybe a hundred T-Rexes <laughs> swarm on... Yeah, and only if, on you know, only if if Smog's fire was exhausted enough, he had to come down and scrap with them. Otherwise, he could, you know, strafe them with fire and fly back to his lair and, and, and laugh while they wondered where he'd gone. So, actually, I think that one possibility would something like uh, your Deinonychus, your Dromaeosaurs, or what, or Raptors, as they're also called now, which is a name I like. Mm. Some paleontologists object, but a lot of them like it, too. Anyway, uh, they were the they're kind of one of the go-to scary dinosaurs in my book. Uh, they were about 10 feet long, feathered, very active, and weighed about the size of a full-grown male. They weighed up to about 150 pounds, or as far as they know. And in my book, anyway, they're pack predators and are fairly intelligent. So, you know, if they if they manage to lure Smaug or another dragon down low and leap on him from above somehow... That they might be able to do him some serious hurt, but that's there. There's a lot of ifs involved in that equation. <laughs> yeah. And as far as um as writing goes, um, you've been doing this for a long time. You've written many, many words, released many, many books. Philip and myself are kind of newer to the industry, so we've only kind of been around pu- publishing for a few years um, in a more professional sense. I just wanted to ask you if you could just kind of give us your perspective on maybe how the publishing industry has changed over the course of your career, maybe contrast and compare how things were when you started versus how they are now and kind of maybe your your hopes to see how, how publishing how the publishing industry continues to grow uh, from this point on. Well I think one of the the biggest changes, and it's something that the the publishers themselves have not fully assimilated, is the rise of ebooks 
and the potential for self-publishing. For a long time, the publishers have basically held a bottleneck over aspiring writers. I mean, they, you know, if you wanted your, your work to achieve a larger audience, you had to go through them. And while if you could make the cut, which in large part is luck, I mean, a lot of that's involved. I think ability and persistence count for something too, but luck, honestly, is a big part of whether you get the chance and, and what happens with it. But with the rise of the ability to to self-publish and self-distribute your stuff, the, the rules are slowly changing. Now, obviously, the publishers do offer a number of advantages, such as professional quality editing, which, in my experience, you don't always get for publishers, although I must say I have absolutely for Dinosaur Lords. You get the artwork and the marketing and so on. But again, they've done wonderfully by me for Dinosaur Lords, but a lot of my friends have not been so lucky, and a lot of my past works have, have not been so lucky. So I think, I'm not sure how things are going to develop, but I think that the, uh, the nature of the industry is going to shift power a little more in favor, not just of the the writers, but the readers. I mean, another, a, a tremendous thing that, that has been done for both writers and readers, I think, is in terms of backlist through ebooks, especially. In the old days, if you wanted a book, you had to get one that was either in print while it was in print, or you had to get it in a used bookstore, and neither might have been possible. Plus, if you get it in a used bookstore, the author doesn't get any royalties. And nowadays, if you convert a book to ebook form and make it available through Amazon or Smashwords or what have you, that any time a reader wants to buy a copy of it, they can. And I, I think that's, that's wonderful. And certainly something that's very attractive to all the many professional writers I know, rather than having your stuff have a mayfly life and then vanish and be hard, if not impossible to find anymore. And as a reader, I like it because if I find a series that's, that's years old, or if I find a book that's, that's years old and I want to read it, when I find that it's available on Amazon for a few bucks and at a very click, you know, that, that, that's great news for me. An, an, an example, just one of the books I'm reading now is an omnibus of Alexei Panshin's Anthony Villiers novels that's called New Celebration. It's a collection of his three books in that particular series and they're classics and I wanted to read them and wasn't sure where the, my, my dead tree versions of them were. So I was ecstatic to find them in a, in a Kindle edition, which I'm reading now. So just, just that alone for writers and readers, I think is huge. That was a big thing for me. Um, I've been trying to get into some writers that haven't had as much exposure to the mainstream. For example, Jack Vance is someone who's brought up a lot and, and I've definitely been trying to get into him. And I think they've released a lot of his Dying Earth stuff under new names yeah. uh, as, as e-books. So that's been definitely cool to see uh, people like uh, Jack Vance or Wagner, who did the Kane yeah. series. Uh, his stuff was hard to find also. I think it was like $100 for a, for a hardback. Um, but a lot of this is getting re- re-released now. So... Are there, are there any authors that you could suggest to people that may, people may not know as much about that kind of influenced you early on or even today? Well, to start with, I, you know, Jack Vance is, in fact, my favorite author. And in terms of being able to read his books online, the Spatterlight Press, I'm not sure why they call it that, 
is making available all of his works over time on in ebook form, and you can buy them there. So people who are interested in the ebooks of Jack Vance, and I, I would recommend you look into them. He wrote a number of things: fantasy, science fiction, and the occasional detective novel, for which he won awards, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So he was a major one. Most of my most of my big influences were fairly well known. Roger Zelazny, who wrote my very favorite book, Lord of Light, and was also a friend and a Wild Cards contributor. Eventually, obviously, he's not best known for that. <laughs> I took a lot of inspiration from his books, and I still love reading them. Uh, Robert A. Heinlein was a big influence on me. Tolkien was one. Actually, what you may not have heard of is a fantasy writer, Fletcher Pratt, who was also a historical writer. He wrote a book, a fantasy called Well of the Unicorn, that is is quite good and not often remembered today. Uh, someone else, Paul Anderson, who was a science fiction, Paul Anderson, mm. science fiction and fantasy writer who died about 20 years ago, I think, uh, was, a, was a brilliant writer and did some stuff that's well worth looking up in both those genres. So I'd, I'd suggest them, if people are looking okay, for great. new writers to try. And by the way, Paul Anderson's first name is P-O-U-L. He was a Danish immigrant. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to pronounce that. I've seen it around and... Yeah, actually, I, wasn't I think sure it's Paul or Paul Anderson, but I just say Pool because it's simple and I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't even pronounce my own name strictly most of the time. <laughs> I'm going to bother with this. Well, Victor, it's been so great being able to connect with you tonight and talk about the Dinosaur Lords. Uh, just a couple quick questions, and we will have you on your way, sir. Book two and book three. How How is the series uh, progressing so far? What's in the works beyond the Dinosaur Lords? Well, uh, actually, they're progressing very well. I've, I'm still in the process of rewriting to editorial notes for book two, which is called The Dinosaur Knights, although I was working on it today, and I'm, I'm really pleased with it. There's not a lot of, of revision doing, but I'm doing a lot of cleanup stuff that just is time-consuming. And the third novel, which is about half-written, although it's going to have to be extensively rewritten, is called The Dinosaur Princess, currently. And it's going to take things in a bit of a new direction, although it's, you know, it's the survivors of the original two book and a continuation of the story. Then there's the, the latter half of the Hexology, which I hope Tor sees fit to buy based on the, the performance of, of the earlier books. Then I'm also working on developing some, some side projects. The one that I've been most involved in recently is one that I, I consider a Lovecraftian techno thriller, similar in nature to Charles Strauss's Laundry Files, which I'm also reading now and love a lot. My own approach would be that, that in this case, gods, specifically the old Aztec gods, have returned to the planet and are making quite a scene of themselves, because they were some unpleasant <laughs> creatures. Talk about, talk about something that lends itself to grimdark. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they, they were fueled basically by human sacrifice. The, the gorier, the better. Well, that's but it would be it would be their intrusion into what amounts to our modern world, and I'm intrigued by that theme and would like to play with it. So that's that's the that's the major side project I'm working on now. Excellent, excellent. Well, the Dinosaur Lords is available now in bookstores everywhere. Uh, where can people find you online, Victor? I am at uh, www.victormalad.com. And my blog is found there, which is 
usually updated a few times a month. I haven't done it recently because I've been running around doing all this other stuff to do with the book. I'm also on Facebook as Victor Milad and on Twitter as Victor Milad. And if you, you know, do a search for Victor Milad on either of those, I'm not that hard to find. Excellent. Well, best of luck with books two and books three and the hexology of the Dinosaur Lords. People are in for a real treat when they check out the book. Victor, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the show. It's been a total blast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>